The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning, happy Monday, and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. Coming up, we have a pretty uh, big show for you today. First, uh, I interview Congresswoman Judy Chu, and then after that, I'm going to replay an interview I did with Congressman shift but before that so we've got uh, lots happening big big ones first the major thing that happened is obviously uh, former president donald trump's taxes that were finally revealed or disclosed and it's uh kind of shocking I, i'm still trying to really digest it all and and <laughs> the magnitude of it is uh, unbelievable i mean the report it reveals that Trump, on his federal tax returns, declared negative income in 2015, 2016, 2017, and 2020. And he paid a total of $1,500 in income taxes for the years 2016 and 2017. On their 2020 income tax returns, President Trump uh, and his wife, First Lady Melania, paid no fifth federal tax income taxes and claimed a refund of 5 million for 5.47 million uh this is according to a report by the uh, staff of the joint committee on taxation uh so it's just uh, sort of astounding to <laughs> to really read this finally we kind of knew but uh, we didn't know it was going to be this bad what do you think yeah he's been in court for i feel like for years trying to suppress suppress this information so the fact that it's finally out is almost a relief and i would like to hire the person who does his taxes i mean <laughs> to get a tax refund right 5.47 million it, it's just uh unbelievable to claim nothing but then get a refund it, it's over my it's over my head but the fact that information is finally out is I, I don't know why, but it, but even it, as as his president, as president, remember his his quote unquote empire was being run. Uh, so it was he still had his businesses going. I, I just wonder, do you think that uh, some of his supporters will sort of uh, some of them will uh, sort of see the light, leave him? No, 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 not at all, not at all. No. Okay, so so his old statement that if if he stood on Fifth Avenue with the machine gun and killed people, the people would still support him. Uh, I suppose that's true for some people. Yeah, I mean, even after the insurrection, I did not get a vibe whatsoever that support uh, waned for him in any sense. Yeah, yeah, I'm afraid uh, you might be you might be right. Let's talk about uh, Ukraine's President uh, Zelensky's visit to Congress. Uh, what do you think about all that? Yeah, well, it's it's uh, our first international visit 
since Russia invaded Ukraine in February of 2022. And to come out here, um, from everything I've read, he was, the way he was received by U.S. lawmakers, It the whole thing was uh, very emotional. And yeah, he's become a, he's become a, a figure that inspires people. And I, I think, I think it was a, a very monumental moment. I can't really put my finger on it, but yeah, the courage he's he's shown it has been pretty remarkable. I wanted to get your uh, your take on that. Uh, I'm I'm really happy for the people of Ukraine. As much as they're suffering, at least there's international recognition and efforts uh, to help them. That's really important uh, in a world where uh, so many conflicts and uh, atrocities like this go unnoticed or or just ignored. Uh, I do have a lot more to say about that in my uh, Let's Get Blunt segment, so I'll just leave it for that <laughs> and move on to the next topic, which is sort of uh, about business and uh, sort of where we're going in terms of our business models and such. The theaters, cinemas across the nation and probably across the world took a big hit with COVID, and uh, a lot of people who sort of stopped going to theaters uh, are not going back. Now, Avatar, which just premiered, it, it brought in a pretty impressive number, but it didn't meet the expectations, which suggests that the you know theaters are having a hard time getting people to go back in. So many people are used to streaming now and such. Uh, and as a result, two of the largest theater chains in the nation, their stock uh, plummeted uh, a couple of days ago. So what do you think? Do you think this is a temporary thing until we're completely out of the woods with COVID or this is just where we're headed? When's the last time you've been to the movies, Vic? Oh, it's been it's been months. It's been a long time. <laughs> yeah. It sucks, but the movie theater experience is turning into a niche like mm -hmm. this small segment of the population who still likes going. Um, the last movie that that I know did really well was Tom Cruise's uh, Maverick, the sequel in the Top Gun series. Right. So I don't think we will see numbers the way we did before, uh, weekend box office numbers in this post-COVID era. But I, I don't think mo the movie theaters are going away either. I, I hope they don't. I, I love going to the movies. Um, a lot of the, the Marvel movies, I still think will be able to stay afloat. I think the movies that, you know, real dramas and stuff and pretty much non-blockbuster popcorn type of movies, I, I think I think they will take a hit going forward. I, I agree with a lot of uh, what you said. I think this is a this is kind of where we're headed. People just streaming and such. And there will always be people who want to go to the movies, including me. But it will uh, it will slowly uh, get smaller and smaller. And eventually movie movie theater uh, chains and such will have to sell some properties. Um, I mean, you know, a very small example was that uh, Lambley, uh, a theater chain that I really um, like, had to sell their Pasadena location. Uh, because of COVID and what they had to go through, um, I think uh, that's something that we will we will see going forward. Um, I'm just curious to see. Another element of it is the prices to movies are becoming astronomical. You yeah. know, just considering the what you're paying for a ticket to see a movie, you know, is it really worth it? So I think a lot of factors are are going into the decisions of Americans, and you could say that about concerts and sporting events and 
and all this stuff. Like, you know, how much is it going to cost to take my family to go see a movie? Concessions too. I mean, concessions have always been just astronomical. You know? well, that that's how they make their bread, supposedly. Yeah, yeah supposedly, uh, movie theaters don't make a lot of money from your ticket. They make it at concessions, and uh, that's that's why you know it's like seven or eight dollars to buy some popcorn. So we'll see where where this goes. And with that, I'll just go into my let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. Today, I want to talk about this uh, horrendous double standard that a lot of us are witnessing as to how the international community and community in quotes, and also our our president, President Biden and Secretary Blinken are treating uh, the suffering of people. As I've said, uh, I'm very happy that uh, Ukraine has gotten all the attention and help that it it needs to fight the invasion of of the of Putin and Russia's uh, you know mayhem that they've caused. But you know, people forget or they don't know that a year and a half before that, the independent Republic of Artsakh was invaded by Azerbaijan, Turkey, uh, with help from ISIS and Pakistani, uh, Syrian, and Libyan mercenaries when they killed over 5,000 Armenians in 44 days. Now, what's worse even now is, well, I don't know if it's worse, but what continues is that uh, for the last 12 days, Azerbaijan has blocked the only road to Artsakh, has, uh, in essence, uh, is holding hostage 120,000 Armenians who are running out of food, are running out of medical supplies and everything else. Their officials have um, called on governments and leaders and organizations um, to do something, human rights organizations. There was a, a UN Security um, Council meeting yesterday uh, that discussed it. You know, other organizations have come out and basically said that the road should be opened. The let's get blunt part is my disappointment with our president who has supported uh, Ukraine, rightfully so, and has been uh, very vocal, firmly, about who the aggressor is, uh, being Russia. And yet he hasn't uttered a word about the fact that um, Armenians are you know, it depends on how you look at it, either going through another genocide or the genocide continues considering Turkey is helping Azerbaijan. So we've got to call out everyone equally, no matter what their political affiliation. So there it is. Um, there is my let's get blunt for today. Let's get blunt. The Blunt Post with Vic. Congresswoman Judy Chu has represented California's 27th district since 2009 which includes Pasadena and the entire San Gabriel Valley. Uh, Representative Chu currently serves on the powerful House Ways and Means Committee, which has jurisdiction over legislation pertaining to taxes, revenues, Social Security, and Medicare. Good morning, uh, Congresswoman Chu. Thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you? Very good. Thank you for having me here. Oh, it's always my pleasure. You know, let's just get right uh, into it. Um, the House is now uh, just slightly Republican majority, uh, no longer uh, a majority Democrat. And obviously, Speaker Pelosi is no longer the Speaker of the House. And I know that, uh, you know, you you keep on fighting for your constituents 
uh, nothing's changed uh, in that regard. But is there anything about this change, this power shift that worries you or you think is going to hinder uh, what you're doing? I just came from uh, a Congress that was so successful. We passed such incredible bills that are changing the lives of um, Americans for the better, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Infrastructure Bill, the American Rescue Plan, the Chips and Science Act. Uh, and I am so proud that we were able to do this under Speaker Pelosi, who I have to say is one of the most successful and consequential speakers in U.S. history. And I have immense confidence in our new leadership team led by Hakeem Jeffries, who will be our minority leader, uh, as well as Catherine Clark and, and Pete Aguilar. But the thing that does concern me is the fact that Republicans will be in the majority. And already I can see that they are focused on investigations and on just uh, messaging kinds of acts. So their oversight committee is going to be investigating Hunter Biden's laptop. Uh -oh. uh, yes, uh, we will be Priorities. hearing about that over and over again. We will be hearing about um, uh, investigations of cabinet secretaries. And of course, this will go nowhere. Whatever bill they come up with will be stocked in the Senate and then will, of course, not be signed into law by President Biden. That's why I say that all these acts are just messaging exercises, but it will make for uh, a, a very ugly atmosphere. And so, yes, I am worried about that. Uh, however, I will look for ways to uh, have some bipartisan action on certain bills that may not be as high profile, but I do think there's some possibility for passing some things for which uh, I know that there is agreement with Republicans. Yeah, yeah, I've been following the all your accomplishments. Uh, it is a lot of great news recently, but it is scary to think that we may have another repeat of the Hillary emails, and this time is the is the Hunter Biden yes. laptop. It just seems like such a PR stunt. Um, mm -hmm to do those uh, waste of time, waste of taxpayer money, uh, so-called investigations. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Congresswoman Judy Chu. You mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act, um, which is one of, the, one of the major things that I passed and you were a champion for that. Uh, obviously, you know, Americans are really worried about the current inflation, although we've recently seen some change in that. Um, there are all these economists talking about a, an inevitable recession. Are you worried for 2023? And uh, what do you think people need to focus on? Well, I listened to the worries of Americans and of constituents in my district. Uh, I know that uh, every single person in this country has felt the impact impacts of inflation. We know that they worry about uh, whether they can pay for the groceries or their gas or their rent. Uh, they are struggling to deal with these high costs and we need to do everything that we can to bring them down. I do have to say though that I think that we are beginning to see some positive signs. Uh, last week we learned that price increases cooled in November 
which was the best inflation report since December of last year. Gas prices are also going down back to the levels that we saw before Russia launched their illegal war in Ukraine. Uh, and the shipping backlogs that caused so many supply chain, supply chain issues have eased significantly. These are all positive signs. And also we see that uh, unemployment remains low at just 3.7%. Uh, Nonetheless, we need to do everything we can to bring down costs and keep our economy strong. That's why the Inflation Reduction Act was so important. Mm. It will take uh, a little bit of time for us to make sure we implement these things. Um, and that is that we ensure that the costs are lowered for electricity, for electric vehicles, for prescription drugs and health insurance. That takes some uh, regulation and rules. Uh, so perhaps Americans have not seen the results of that and have not yet felt the relief, but they will soon. Makes sense. It's not a magic wand by any means. Speaking of, you know, you've been you've been uh, a champion for so many different causes and so many different um, disfranchised communities, minorities, immigrants, women, LGBTQ. You helped to pass the Respect for Marriage Act, which was uh, a huge uh, accomplishment. Is it harder? Is there more more pressure on you as the first Chinese American woman in Congress to have to sort of do your best to keep everyone happy, although that's impossible. Well, I embrace the mission of fighting for equality for everybody in this country. Uh, I feel that this is why I was elected to Congress. So um, I don't feel that uh, this is a burden at all. In fact, I feel it's an honor to be able to fight for these challenges. Uh, and in fact, last week I was at the White House for the Respect for Marriage signing, and it was just inspirational to be there and to see that we have been able to enshrine the protections uh, for marriage equality into law. We not only protected um, same-sex couples, but also interracial couples. If you can believe it, that was in danger as well. Yeah. So I believe that uh, that'll be one of the things that I'll be proudest of, but I actually feel um, so proud of being able to do things like uh, fight against anti-Asian hate. Uh, and for two and a half years, we had horrendous anti-Asian hate crimes and incidents, 11,500 of them. So that's why it was so important to get the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act uh, signed into law. And in fact, we are working very hard to make sure that it's implemented uh, properly. But also, I feel it's an honor to fight for women's equality. And that is very much in danger. I couldn't believe that after 50 years of having our abortion rights protected, that that would be taken away from us. And we are seeing the consequences all across the United States. So that's why it's been my honor to be the person to have introduced the bill, the Women's Health Protection Act, which would enshrine the protections of Roe versus Wade into law so that every woman in every state, regardless of her zip code, 
can have access to the reproductive choices that she's had for 50 years. I have to say, I never in my wildest dream would have, or nightmare, I should say, would have imagined that Roe versus Wade would be compromised in any kind of a way. It was definitely a massive wake-up call. And, and you know, you said it too, I mean, the fact that we have to address interracial marriage or, or couples, I mean, it's just, you know, it's insane. Uh, or that we haven't learned from, and not not to group uh, Chinese Americans with the Japanese Americans just because they happen to be from the same continent. But we haven't. It seems like we haven't learned from the fact that we put uh, Japanese Americans in camps in the '40s, and now we have. It's the same mentality of hate and phobia that causes the anti-Asian hate and all the the insane um, harassing and violence that the Asian Americans had to deal with. Uh, it's just, uh, it's like a cycle sometimes that just goes through. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Congresswoman Judy Chu. I have to say you haven't been, uh, you know, for those listening may, who may not know, the Independent Republic of uh, Artsakh, uh, which is of mostly of Armenians, uh, was invaded two years ago. And uh, right now, as we speak, it's day eight of uh, Azerbaijan basically blocking the only road that connects Artsakh to the uh, rest of Armenia, endangering the lives of 120,000 people. You've not been afraid to um, speak up about this. You've been very firm. You've been very supportive of the Armenian American community as well as just human rights in general, which is what this is all about. You know, a lot of people have been trying to get Congress to sanction Azerbaijan and Turkey and to get uh, President Biden and uh, Secretary Blinken uh, to do something, but not much has come out. I know that the Congressman Schiff is working on something and, and, and you are, uh, but from the State Department and White House, we haven't seen anything. What are we missing from this? Well, first of all, let me thank you for your incredible film, Motherland. It's such a powerful documentary that shows exactly why we need to stand up for Armenia and Artsakh and why there has been a lag in terms of the State Department and other powers that be in terms of backing what is clearly an unprovoked assault, just like what we see in Ukraine. Uh, and so we should be just as outraged as to what is happening in Artsakh as we are with Ukraine. And yet we know that there are some powerful financial interests that are at play here. So now we are at two years since Azerbaijan's terrible war of aggression in Artsakh. I in particular just felt so horrified at this because I did get to visit Artsakh and I saw how beautiful it was and how indeed it is an Armenian territory. And uh, certainly the people did not deserve to be massacred this way, over 5,000 that have been massacred in this, in this unprovoked attack. And we need to speak out against this. And so that's why uh, I certainly have been behind every action that we could to stop financial support to Azerbaijan, to have sanctions on it. And what happened, yes, this last week in terms of Azerbaijan putting a blockade of the Lakin Corridor, which is the only road that connects Artsakh to Armenia, and also 
is a critical supply line for food and medical supplies. Um, well, that is unacceptable. That's why I immediately signed the letter that was led by Congressman Bradham Schiff calling on President Biden to take action uh, by using all tools at the government's disposal to ensure the safety of the people of Artsakh, including the cessation of um, financial support to Azerbaijan and the imposition of sanctions. We will continue to raise our voices. We ha actually have a very strong bipartisan Armenian caucus in Congress that keeps on raising its voice. And, you know, we have seen success in terms of President Biden finally calling um, the Armenian genocide what it was, a genocide. Uh, that was tremendous progress, and we cheered so much when that happened. But there is so much work yet to be done. Thank you so much for all that you do. It's incredible, Congresswoman Chu. Uh, it's definitely, ju just from the way you speak, your authentic self and the words that you use, uh, It's uh, it makes all the difference because I don't hear sound bites. I don't hear canned speeches. Sometimes you hear from other elected officials. Um, so your true genuine care is really appreciated. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Congresswoman Judy Chu. I know that you're pressed for time, so I want to, um, I just want to ask you, if there is there a question that I should have asked you that I haven't, that I've missed? There's so much left to be done. And I know, of course, that in the next two years, we will be at a stalemate since the House will be in control of um, uh, by the Republicans. But I am looking forward to two years from now when we can take back the House and we can continue to make some important steps forward. And there's so much left to be done. One thing I have pledged to do since my entire time in Congress is to reform our broken immigration system. There's so many people that are in the shadows, 11 million people who are just in the shadows because they have no way to be able to have a right to legalization. And there are those like our dreamers, our temporary protected status recipients, our migrant farm workers and other essential workers who are suffering because of this. Um, and then... Uh, we have uh, another important issue, which actually I hope could be possibly satisfied if this is in the in the omnibus bill that um, we hope to pass soon. Uh, and that is to ensure that uh, Indian families that uh, have foster children uh, would be able to be made whole. And we have a situation now which is uh, remedied by uh, a bill that I am sponsoring which is uh, an update of the Indian Child Welfare Act. Since the 1970s, Indian children who are foster children have had the first right to be able to be placed with an extended family member or with the tribe. But right now the Supreme Court is hearing a case that is trying to overturn this. And so, yeah, and so we have to see what will happen with that Supreme Court case, but what I am doing is trying to make sure that this remains a statute under law so that Indian children do not lose their heritage and their culture. And then there are ongoing issues like the child tax credit. 
the child tax credit reduced poverty in this country by nearly in half for children, and yet it was allowed to lapse at the end of last year. I think that our children should be our priority, and that's why I would like to see the child tax credit extended, if not made permanent. So these are ongoing issues that are there to make sure that our families have a good quality of life, that they have something to look forward to, and that they have hope for their futures. And so, yes, we have much to do in the next in the next few years, but especially after we get back the house. Speaking of, you know, sometimes uh, most of us are sort of prone to just sit back and think our elected officials are going to just handle everything. Is, is there anything uh, that requires a call to action that you would want your constituents, just people to be a little bit more active about uh, or anything to do? I always encourage people to raise their voices on the most critical issues. And one thing I learned from Nancy Pelosi is that there is the inside advocacy and the outside advocacy. It's the inside outside partnership. Yes, it's important to have people on the inside who are casting those votes for the things that the American people want. But it's just as important to have those from the outside who are raising their voices to say, this is what the American people want. And in fact, this strategy is how we were able to save the Affordable Care Act. You know, we passed it and um, that was in 2010, but immediately Republicans tried to uh, undo it. And so we face, I don't know how many votes, uh, it's 50, 60 votes to try to undo the Affordable Care Act. So we, of course, cast our votes against these efforts, but it was the American people that came out and raised their voices. In fact, that was one of the most powerful movements that I saw of uh, people organizing forums and speak outs all across the country talking about what it means to them to be able to have access to healthcare, a healthcare insurance plan where they would not be denied coverage because of some pre-existing condition or some other barrier. So yes, it's it's our partnership that can make things happen. Yeah, something tells me the Affordable Care Act, we're not done with that. <laughs> yeah. I think Republicans are gonna come back uh, to attack it again. Uh, Congresswoman Chu, uh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate your time and uh, for your support. So many issues. I, it's just, uh, it's really incredible watching you at work for all of us. Truly, truly grateful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Vic. It was great being with you. That was my interview with uh, Congresswoman Judy Chu from California's 27th district, uh, pretty local to KPFK. Uh, Congresswoman Chu, thank you very much for your time. Uh, it was a pleasure. Uh, good luck with everything and happy holidays. The Blunt Post with Vic. Congressman Chu, thank you again for doing this. My pleasure. You are truly an icon for the Armenian community, for the LGBTQ community, for Americans, and worldwide for your leadership what you did with all the weight that was on your shoulders uh, in 2019 and 2020 and how you walked through that. So it was a dream for me 
to have you be part of this documentary. Well, thank you. It's an honor to participate. Absolutely. Someone who, for 30 years, even prior to becoming a member of Congress, a state senator, you've been fighting for um, human rights, Armenian-American rights, uh, just the rights of the, the sort of the underdog. So it seems like <laughs> issues concerning the Armenian-American community on a large scale, they just keep happening. <laughs> I mean, you, you worked so hard for the recognition of the Armenian genocide, and you brought it to the House in 2019, and it passed and went to the Senate, passed, and President Biden signed it. But now we have this entirely different thing to deal with. Uh, and of course, a lot of people are looking uh, at your leadership. What is your assessment and, and uh, perception about where we are now? Well, I, I guess it begins with a great frustration because the war uh, in Artsakh was preventable. And uh, for years, Azerbaijan uh, provoked violence along the line of contact. And many of us in Congress, uh, through successive administrations, urged uh, our State Department uh, to forcefully push back, to uh, call out Azerbaijan for its uh, belligerence and its uh, provocative acts. And, uh, and the most that we could get was uh, statements of uh, moral equivalence. Uh, we called both sides to cease any further violence, called both sides to peacefully resolve the differences. When you do that, when you're not willing to hold one side accountable that's responsible, it's essentially greenlighting further aggression. And I think that gave Azerbaijan the impression that they could uh, continue along that path and make war without repercussion. And so the, the, my first um, sentiment about the whole thing is just how tragically preventable it was. And, uh, and then uh, the, the horrific loss of life, uh, Turkey's role in importing mercenaries uh, from Syria, uh, terrorists uh, to... Uh, joined the, the mayhem, um, again demonstrated how incompatible Turkey's actions are with being a NATO ally. And more immediately, uh, we still need to continue the pressure to return these prisoners of war to end these sham prosecutions and uh, make sure that these uh, young people are returned to their families. Uh, so that, that trauma continues. Uh, and... Uh, the only thing I think that's going to achieve the result that we want is for the United States and our allies to continue to pressure Azerbaijan and to hold them accountable in the international court of law. So uh, that's a lot. Um, I'm working on some reforms to the Freedom Support Act so that we uh, don't provide aid to Azerbaijan when they're engaged in human rights violations. and. Uh, and we've had a number of conversations with the Biden administration to get them to stop. Um, and if we need to change the law, then that's what we'll need to do. I'm glad I was going to ask you about that later, but since you brought it up, you know, it was very surprising that about a week after President Biden recognized the Armenian genocide properly, uh, he turned around and waived Section 907, uh, which you just spoke about, and... And I know that you have. I've followed your actions about that, and you voiced your concern and such. What was that about? Because yeah. I just have a hard time understanding that. Well, the, you know, the rationale the administration gives is that the assistance they're providing, they're being very careful to make sure that it can't be used for offensive purposes against Azerbaijan, against Armenia or Artsakh. 
and that it's for things like um, preventing drugs from coming across the border into Azerbaijan. Um, regardless, um, resources are at one level fungible. Unless there's a requirement that we maintain other efforts, you can always divert resources. Right. Um, but more than that, just the idea that we would be providing any kind of military support to a nation that just made unprovoked war against its neighbor um, uh, just, I think, is wrong. And so, you know, what, what the State Department, Defense Department have said is that they're following the requirements of Section 907, but 907 is very permissive mm. uh, the way it's written. And so I've been working with the Armenian community on legislation that would change and remove uh, some of the discretion in that provision. Well, that God clarifies a lot. Thank you for that. Um, and especially Azerbaijan. I mean, do they really need any aid with the oil that's oil and gas yeah. that's going out of there? It just it baffles me. Another thing that baffles me is I think one of the wake up calls for me after September 27th was, of course, I had no expectation of the uh, expectations of the Trump administration and Secretary Pompeo at the time. I uh, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, President Trump gave Erdogan the green light to do what he needed to do. But I was surprised by the inaction of the European Union, Council of Europe. A lot of European bodies, I feel like they played three monkeys. And then a couple of days ago, of course, the ambassadors of many nations, excluding the U.S., uh, Russia, and France, members of the OSCE Men's Group, uh, went to parts of occupied Artsakh on this tour, on this propaganda tour. That, too, I don't understand. I mean, Greece was one of them. I thought, really, Greece? This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Congressman Adam Schiff. Do those things baffle you or... You know, you you're so your perspective is so much broader, bigger that you kind of understand it. Well, I, I don't understand all of it. I don't understand uh, what you've described, particularly Greece's role. That's very shocking. Um, in terms of of Europe's inaction, uh, you know, I think uh, France tried to play a leadership yeah. role, um, but the United States is uh, really indispensable and. When we lead, uh, we have the capacity to inspire others to, to act with us. When we don't lead, then other nations consider it a pass, and they yeah. uh, don't necessarily take responsibility to fill in the void. And, uh, and so without stronger leadership of the United States to push back against uh, Azeri aggression, uh, without more initiative by the United States and the Minsk Group, the Minsk Group process kind of languished. And, uh, uh, and we are where we are. So, you know, for a lot of the last several years, I, I watched uh, Macron and I thought uh, that I'm glad that someone is yeah. trying to do something. Um, but uh, the degree to which Turkey and Azerbaijan are going to feel compelled to do something because France is asking versus France and the United States, it's a big, big difference. Sure. I would think that. Uh, President Biden, having been, you know, in in Congress for decades prior to that, and he's very knowledgeable about this entire issue, that that they would really be a little bit more firm. But I don't see that from him or Secretary Blinken. 
Um, I think that it's still probably too early to tell which direction the administration is going uh, with some of these issues. Um, they're obviously looking at Azerbaijan not alone through the prism of the impact on Armenia. Sure. And uh, at the same time, um, I found the administration when I was lobbying them on the genocide to be more supportive, more conversant with the issue than any other administration I dealt with. And uh, and that led, not surprisingly, to the result that we all hoped uh, with the president's recognition of the genocide. So um, in many respects, I think they understand the region and the history better than prior administrations, but we still plainly have work to do. Um, because they have not been willing to stand up to Azerbaijan the way they need to. Yeah. I just wonder if, um, you know, sometimes it's we simplify and think it's just the oil and gas and the, the weapons that Azerbaijan buys from Western countries and such. And, of course, they have such a strong lobby power and just a propaganda machine. Um, I see it and read it on a daily basis. It's... Um, I think that's one of the reasons when, when President Macron was so, I think, courageous with it and was trying to get the French troops there vis-a-vis UN, thought, wow, someone is actually going to do something. Uh, it was a little bit of hope. But, you know, right now they're, they're using these prisoners of war, who I think are at this point <laughs> hostages, yeah. to really make deals. You know, to make deals, and it's such a tragic situation that's just been going on. They really are hostages. I think yeah. that's exactly the right word for it. Um, and I don't know whether you know, part of the issue um, is in terms of a reluctance uh, by any administration to take on a stronger role, push back on Azerbaijan, it has to do with the geopolitical considerations vis-a-vis -vis Russia. But uh, we have a moral obligation, and. You know, we've learned, I think, the hard way that uh, when we uh, sacrifice our values um, in the hope that it will serve the national interest, it doesn't, because our values are our interests, and our interests are our values. And so, um, we're going to, you know, we're going to keep pushing back. I, I do think that with respect to the Congress, the the Azeri lobby is a big deal, um, and the Turkish lobby has been a big deal yeah. and a big impediment. I think that's less of an issue with the administration. I think the administration is it's more geopolitical thinking than it is the lobby. But, you know, in Congress, we have a very broad base of support, bipartisan base of support for Armenia. Yeah. And uh, we want to strengthen the U.S.-Armenia relationship. Glad to see we've got a substantial amount of funding in the appropriations bill for Armenia and money for demining uh, operations in Artsakh as well. Uh, not as much as we would like, but nonetheless, um, given where the budget is these days. Uh, Without you, it would have been uh, way less. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Congressman Adam Schiff. So I want to sort of put you on the spot if I can for a second. I know that all people, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, Armenian community, LGBT community, whatever minority group, we expect so much from our members of Congress and we think everything can just be fixed like that. <laughs> Share something that you would like 
to share with the Armenian community that you think they, they just need to know, just know where you're coming from? Well, I was going to come back to the same thing, which is um, from my very first days and even before politics, um, the Armenian community welcomed me like a member of the family. And it's been a wonderful uh, relationship. And I think that the, the affinity that I have for the community and I hope the community has for me, um, a lot of it comes from my own background. I come from a community that had, it, had its own genocide. Um, I know what it's like to have an affinity for a country far away, surrounded by hostile neighbors. Yeah. Uh, and those struggles are familiar uh, to me. I know the, the pain of genocide denial when I hear Holocaust denial. And also, uh, there, there's so many cultural similarities in love of family and love of food and looking at... Uh, the, the, your, your colleague's uh, T-shirt. Um, <laughs> uh, that same sentiment. I'm not yelling. I'm Armenian. You could say that about the Jewish community too. Uh, so just not just... as loud. <laughs> yes, I wrote two years ago. I wrote a, a long form article. I called it "Jews: Colon Armenians' Other Cousins," and I went into how uh, we've considered the Greeks our cousins. I think a lot of it has to do with our past with Turkey and then the French for you know France's role in sort of toward the end of the genocide what they did in rescuing of Armenians and such and then uh, I go into the connection between the Jewish community and Armenians and from Ambassador Morgenthau to Franz Werfel to you know who, who wrote 40 Days of Musadal to to Raphael Lemkin who coined the term genocide and on and on um, so yeah absolutely I was remarking to my staff the other day I was at the groundbreaking for the Armenian American Museum and Cultural Center and listening to the Protestant uh, priest uh, Armenian priest who spoke um, I they was let him there they let him in <laughs> indeed um, I was really struck by and I, I guess he was speaking in the Western dialect, okay. how much the chanting of the prayers in Armenian in the Western dialect reminded me of the chanting of prayers in Hebrew. And I didn't know whether it was the geographic proximity that, that accounted for the similarity, but I, I, I was really struck by it. And yeah, uh, so I think we are cousins. Yes. I actually went to the Holocaust Memorial in Yerevan too. Uh, I went to Tzernagobert, the Armenian Genocide Memorial, and the Holocaust Memorial. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that line from Hitler when he gave the speech before invading Poland, I think it haunts people who nowadays are members of the extermination of Armenians, yeah. trying to convince the, the Nazis that uh, don't worry about killing Jews, no one's going to care, yeah. forget it, like yeah. they did with the Armenians. So, Congressman, I don't want to break my <laughs> promise of how long this is going to take. Um, I do want to ask you if you want to add something, if there was a question I should have asked you. Um, I don't think so. No, I really appreciate what you're doing. And uh, you. I give some hope to Armenians who feel very embattled. Uh, the history of the Armenian people is a history of resilience. It's a history of overcoming difficulties, experiencing setbacks, and yet pushing forward, always forward, and overcoming. It, it's a history tinged with great sadness, but also great joy. And the Armenian community will continue to persevere. Uh, I have every confidence. And, and I'm just grateful to have such a close relationship and to be able to 
see the contributions the community makes to our, our lives in, in America and around the world. Uh, so this is a very difficult time, but, but people should know these, this too shall pass. And, and we support you and love you and cherish you. Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible, and KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. The Blunt Post with Vic.